Hey folks and welcome back to Jinx, the Pat Higgins Film Podcast. Today I'm going to be talking about a movie called The House on the Witch Pit. Now this is a kind of long and strange story. I'm still undecided at this point how much of it I'm actually going to tell you, how much of it I'm going to be honest about. But of all the projects that I've worked on, it's the strangest one. But this is going to be this is going to be an honest podcast. I've got to, occasionally I'll get really drawn into the world of something that I've created, and I will lie a lot. Anybody who's ever listened to the director's commentaries on the Devil's Music on physical releases, a lot of those commentaries are full of lies, because I found that interesting. So certainly the initial commentary on the American DVD of the Devil's Music is just lies in keeping with the documentary, the fake documentary itself. And then there's a hidden uh, director's commentary of truth that you can access. I can't remember what you've got. There's something in the sub menus. You've got to highlight something, click left, click right kind of thing. And you can play a, a true commentary on there as well. That's not what I'm going to do here. I'm not going to talk about the house on the witch pit from a perspective of within the movie world. But I am going to talk about it a bit more than I've ever spoken about it before. Um, I'm also going to dig up... There were some interviews on set for when we shot the initial main shoot in 2015. There's some interviews on set that nobody's ever heard that were recorded by Steve Kirkham. Uh, thanks, Steve. And I'll drop in some snippets of that a little bit further down the line. But... I'll explain to start with how the idea came about. I'm going to kind of assume going into this that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably haven't seen this movie. You might have done, but you, I'm going to assume that you haven't. And I'm going to take the story right the way back to the beginning. The beginning goes back to probably about the turn of the millennium uh, where myself and uh, Pippa, my wife, although I don't think we were even married at that point, we lived in a flat in Leon C, and just down the road from the flat was an area, like a, a building area, that was fenced off, but that nothing seemed to be getting built on. Year after year, there would be this area, and nothing would get built there. And I can't remember how I first became aware of the idea that this area used to be where the local drowning pool was. Um, that, in other words, people would be tried for witchcraft by being put into the water, and if they sunk and drowned, they were innocent, and if they floated, they were guilty and would be killed. You know that old brilliant concept of a way of uh, a area ridding itself of women folk. Um, this kind of awful misogynist idea that was used as I say, um, to persecute women. But the the idea that the the building site just down the road from us that never had anything built on, somehow it came to our it came into our um, understanding whether this anecdote was actually correct or not, that this was originally the local area's drowning pool and that people had been very unsuccessful at building there ever since, that they would dig to put foundations and then things would flood with water. And I've no idea how 
we first heard about this and I've no idea to what degree it's true. There is a brilliant local author called Sid Moore uh, who's written many books about uh, witchcraft and she's local, she, she talks about the area quite a lot. I'm sure Sid would be able to shed some light on exactly to what degree that rumour that I heard was true. But for whatever reason, it sat in my head and uh, Pip and I would refer to that area as the witch pit, as in, oh, go down there, turn left at the witch pit kind of thing, which was possibly slightly flippant given the area's horrible past, but that's the way we were. So the idea that a local history could sit in the ground and corrupt it and st stop it being an area that anybody could build on, I found really kind of fascinating. And somehow the phrase, the house on the witch pit, they still haven't built a house on the witch pit, etc., etc. Um, I see they've tried building on the witch pit again, no dice. So the house on the witch pit became a phrase that we would use. And then because I was a dude who wrote movies, or at least I was increasingly becoming a dude who wrote movies at that stage, I thought the house on the witch pit's a great title. So it existed as just a title for a while, as these things usually do. And then I started to mess around with a few drafts of it. The first draft was a kind of uh, knockoff of the movie Warlock. Well, not exactly a knockoff, but it was a very, very similar setup, uh, except with sort of a core trio of sexy witches, a very mainstream horror idea. Um, but I reasonably liked it. It was a slightly sort of tongue-in-cheek horror comedy. It would have possibly fit in my overall kind of work at some point after around Trash House Hellbride, it might have fitted into that. Okay, that was what I was writing it as anyway. The House on the Witch Pit. And then it never kind of came to fruition. And over the years, it started to become something darker to me. It's the, the script started to become a repository for stuff that I thought of that was too dark to go other places. I'm a big believer, at least I was, the, I, I think the, the climate and the understanding of, of things like this has changed a little bit and it's harder to do this in public now, but I used to take solace in black humour related to events that had happened to me. So if something really awful happened in my life, if you, your life gets touched by tragedy in many kind of ways along the line, and if something awful happened to me, I used to kind of think, oh, well, at least that's a subject I can make jokes about now. So if a particular disease or a particular tragedy befell, you know, my, my nearest and dearest or myself, then I kind of thought, at least I've got, I've got some leeway to actually be able to make jokes about this while hopefully people understand that that's a, a part of healing. It's a kind of whistling past the graveyard kind of thing. Nowadays, this, there seems to be a lot less understanding about the fact that if you make jokes around a subject, you're not actively mocking that subject. Sometimes you are actively engaging with it and taking power over it. So the worst things that happen to me would be the things that I'd be most likely to make a joke about. But as I say, nowadays, that's, that's not necessarily something that flies very easily in popular culture. And certainly back then, I was aware that there were jokes that were way too bleak and way too dark for me to stick into scripts for films like Hellbride, which were designed to be, albeit micro-budget movies, they were designed to kind of at least tap into something of a mainstream 
audience, albeit a low-budget horror mainstream audience. So any joke that was too dark, too bleak, or hurt too much, I would stick in another script. This little script, The House on the Witch Pit, became a repository for all my darkest shit that wouldn't go anywhere else. Ideas that were too disturbing, um, jokes that were too bleak. All of that went into this little file of a script called The House on the Witch Pit. And that's kind of how it stayed for quite a while. And then in the early 2010s, we had the whole horrible strippers versus werewolves situation, which as I say was a, a, a gloomy prospect for everybody, horrible situation. And uh, at that point, when I was no longer slated to direct that movie, having written it, I threw myself into the idea that I could resurrect the House on the Witch Pit as a bleak but genuinely scary, uh, properly budgeted horror movie. I think at the time we were looking around the kind of quarter of a million level, something like that. And that I would, it would be my leap up in terms of budget, but that it would be a genuinely scary, bleak, um, engaging, hopefully, attempt at doing a genuine balls-to-the-wall horror rather than the jokier stuff that I'd done before. So it had this little renaissance around about 2010, 2011, 2012, where this was what was scheduled to happen initially with one production company, and then we went into talks with another production company and we actually signed some initial agreements whereby they were going to get the budget together and the movie was going to get shot on the basis. And I had non-disclosures at the time and I wasn't able to talk about that, but that was a long time ago and that company no longer exists. So I'm sure I can talk about it now. The, the deal that I initially had with uh, a particular production company about the house and the witch pit was that we would stream the entirety of the shoot from multiple cameras. We would have cameras in the green room, we would have cameras on the main stage, we would have cameras everywhere, and we would stream the entirety of the shoot. And this was at the point where streaming uh, technology was a little bit in its infancy. There's something that I keep banging on about in all of these podcasts, as you've probably noticed, which is that I always, sometimes I fail, but I'm always trying to do the thing that's one step beyond what's been done previously that's why we made a digital horror movie at the point where no one really was doing it and we were really struck on this idea of streaming the entirety of a shoot almost big brother style before anyone i'd ever heard of anyone doing anything like that and we hooked up with a company who were wanting to test the technology the idea of multi-cam streams where you could hop from one to another because they were wanting to use it for gigs for streaming gigs and so we you know we signed up this deal that effectively they'd put together the production budget, and we would then make this movie with the entirety of the film being production being streamed, which I thought was a really exciting idea. I don't know if that's ever been done since. I'm, you know, There's obviously loads of nightmarish legal implications in terms of what things people might say on set and all that sort of thing, but we figured it was worth jumping through those particular hoops. I don't think anyone's done it since. I think... Um, I think Full Moon have certainly tried to throw open the production process to a degree um, in recent years, but anyway. That deal, uh, as I say, we signed some initial agreements and then ultimately that one fell apart as well. So this movie had this whole long lineage from being a family in-joke to being a sexy witch's warlock knockoff to being um, 
a a mainstream movie being shot in a mainstream way and then a mainstream movie being shot in a very unmainstream way. It had this whole run of stuff for like a 12-year period before the damn thing ever really sort of properly existed. Um, there were various different treatments for it, various different synopses I'd let out over the years. Well, you know, I'd talk about it in interviews and I'd say, oh yeah, it's about this, this and this, but I might have been talking about that really bleak script or I might have been talking about the original Sexy Witches one or I might have been talking about the mainstream one that I put together in the early 2010s. And so there was loads of conflicting information about this movie already out on the internet. What happened then was one New Year's Eve... I was on holiday with friends. We we all went away. All our families went away. And we spent New Year's Eve away, just with friends, away from everywhere. And I literally remember this like a light turning on. Really odd thing. It must have been, thinking about it, it must have been New Year's Eve 2014, I think. And I suddenly had a new idea for what the House and the Witch Pit could become that would be different from all of those previous ideas, but drain a little bit out of each one and so I had this idea of okay I can do this as a micro budget shoot a really really micro budget shoot because we had almost no money in the bank it wasn't wasn't the uh, most profitable time for Jinx Media we had almost no cash whatsoever but I thought no I can do this I could picture a way that I could do it as a series of tiny 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 shoots uh, with one slightly longer one and that we could do the movie for almost no money. And I got very excited about that idea. And I started picking off filming little bits and pieces. It became a film about a film. And there are loads of those already out there. I realise that that's not the most original idea in the world. The idea of there being a lost film uh, that then becomes the subject of another film. There was a Masters of Horror episode that treaded on similar ground. The movie Popcorn, which I liked a lot in the late 80s, early 90s, 1990, maybe somewhere around there. Popcorn was related to similar stuff. There's a movie called Resurrecting the Streetwalker, which I've never seen, but MJ Simpson, who's, who knows everything about uh, UK horror, speaks very, very highly of, and I think that's in a very similar kind of vein. So this idea of going back to a lost movie and that lost movie having some dark malign influence over the present, this isn't a, a unique idea. But I came up with this idea of this lost movie and of a thing called the dinner game. This being an annual event where filmmakers, horror filmmakers get invited to a, a, a dinner party where they have to try and scare one another or freak one another, one another out. And the idea that this becomes a high-stakes game where there is money or careers or whatever can be lost or broken on whether or not these directors make it through the night. And I thought that was a really interesting idea that could tie into this idea of a lost film where maybe this lost film gets screened to these directors. And I've had this other idea. Now, this man, this one goes back a long time. I had this idea... Uh, I think that my original pitch for this was called DV Demons and my god this would have been late 90s the idea that there had been a horror movie that had always been out on VHS where, where they'd used a genuine spell book uh, on the set of the movie but it didn't matter because it, it was on VHS VHS was so fuzzy you could never actually read the text that was in the genuine spell book 
And then this idea that the movie got re-released on DVD and all of a sudden that crystal clarity on the text meant that people at home could read the text and they could summon the demons. And so this movie DV Demons was just this stupid idea I had about the idea about the concept that if you had a spell book in high definition, people might suddenly be able to read it, whereas previously they couldn't, or higher definition rather. So that kind of crept through, that movie obviously never got written or, or made, but I thought it was a funny idea. And that kind of crept through into House on the Witch Pit, the 2015 version, how we shot it, uh, the idea of someone reading aloud a curse that was visible on screen that this lost movie had a, a curse that was uh, that could be seen on screen. And the lost movie within my film, House in the Witch Pit, is also called House in the Witch Pit. So it all gets a bit difficult. Okay, 2015, we managed to make it onto the set for the incredibly, incredibly, incredibly micro-budget core shoot, which was a few days. And I'll, I'll chuck over to some interviews from that period. Uh, my name is Cy Hensey and, uh, <laughs> and we're on the set of The House on the Witch Pit. Um, yeah, I'm not needed at the moment, which yeah. is obviously... To be playing. Yeah, so I'm playing uh, John Canning, who is a uh, horror director. You might... <laughs> is he based on... Pat? I don't know. He's a failed horror... No, he's not a failed horror director. No. He's a very good... He's a horror director who's made one film which has been a huge hit and has basically... Uh, it's like he, he's made one it's been so successful that he's never you know it's like the difficult second album is it is that what they say yeah it's like he's never actually got it together to make another movie after that one um, and so yeah so he's bitter I think he's he's pretty bitter actually and there's another character who turns up who is young and he's on the cutting edge of kind of new media and uh, using sort of, yeah, getting something that's straight out there, very raw, uh, which is, you know, obviously what, the way that it is nowadays. You know, filmmakers can just get, get an iPhone or, or whatever, you know, actually I'm not advertising iPhones. So, uh, <laughs> you know, people can just pick up any, anything that can record any type of video basically and make a movie you know anyone can go out there and do it I think I read somewhere that someone was saying you know the next perhaps the next great director will just perhaps be some little kid with a you know with a phone at home who will just go out and film some stuff and uh, you know cut it together on a laptop somewhere and it will turn out to be an amazing movie I mean that anyone can make movies these days which is what John is kind of angry about I think because Obviously, his movie was kind of crafted. I think he sees, even though it was a horror movie, he sees it as a kind of art form, and he hates this young guy that's coming in who has actually just been able to go out there, pretend to kill a cat. I don't know if I'm allowed to give this away, and then that becomes the the biggest thing. You know, it's 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 like it's all over. You know, it's like it's gone viral, and this guy's become really famous for pretty much doing nothing. And so John hates him, uh, and there's this. Um, thing called the dinner game I don't know how much I'm allowed to give away but there's a thing called the dinner game that happens every year where they invite the best or most renowned horror directors from the UK horror scene together in a kind of classic uh, Agatha Christie kind of dinner party setting um, to try and freak each other out those that leave the house uh, have to pay a forfeit 
the people that still remain at the end are obviously the winners. Obviously, John, my character, wants to win. He's hosted it before. But his main aim seems to be to pick on this young kid. Although there is another underlying um, and kind of quite creepy subplot um, to do with the occult and spells and different things going on. And actually through having, because there there's been two different versions of the scripts. Uh, Pat sent through one which is how he envisaged uh, it might look after editing. And then he sent one through, which is just the dinner party script, which is basically what we're shooting at the moment. Um, and so, I mean, I could put those together in, in my mind, because obviously I know what he's done in the past, and I know how the devil's music came together and slotting those things in. I'm not sure everyone is quite sure of actually what the whole film is going to look like or what the whole plot is. So it's actually a little bit mysterious for some of the, for some of the actors as well, I think. Uh, but it actually, on set, it's, it's turned out to be a few times quite a creepy vibe which is actually quite nice uh, and off the page it's actually worked with the with the cast that Pat has got together to to make you actually sit in the room a couple of times and think ooh that's, you know, that is a little bit creepy which I, I think that's quite unusual actually in in a in a film that you kind of get some kind of you know when you're actually in front of the camera often because you're doing scenes again and again and again sometimes it just becomes like you just kind of you know you just kind of not really in the mouth, I shouldn't say that, but you just kind of, do you know what I mean? You, you, yeah. You're just playing your role, you're just doing it. But uh, occasionally when you get in front of the camera and you get a certain vibe in a room, that's really nice. So I think I've got that, I've had that a few times on, on films, uh, on Killer Killer, I think, because we were filming in a old disused asylum that I used to work in. Um, there was a creepy vibe to the place as well. And so I think, yeah, some of those scenes, I remember getting quite a kind of, little kind of feel about those but yeah on, on set here yeah I think we've had a couple of moments where we thought oh, yeah this seems to be working seems to be quite creepy so uh, so I'm hoping that comes across I'm hoping that comes across on screen uh, my name is Mark Redihoff uh, and in this particular uh, masterpiece I play Damon Reed uh, Damon is a social media sensation who's become famous for uh, uploading short, very shocking images on the internet. Um, he's become quite famous for that, most famously, I think, for killing his own cat uh, and posting it online. So he's become very popular through, uh, through that in the particular horror genre. Right, what's, what's the actual film, is the actual film about? I mean, is it about, because it's something to do with the hover? horror directors coming together. Yeah, it? yeah, the, the dinner games, uh, the dinner game is, uh, I believe it's a yearly event where they get um, masters of the horror genre to uh, come together and try and freak each other out uh, by getting them to try and leave the house. They've got to stay there for one night. If they can't last, then they're gone and uh, eliminated from their careers. Eliminated from their careers? Eliminated from their careers. So they have to give up everything in order to gain the ultimate accolade of winning the dinner games. Right. I'm not sure how much we're allowed to reveal, actually. Um, probably not that. No, probably not that. And the next voice that you're going to hear is me being interviewed on the set in 2015. Somehow, going back and digging through all these clips, 
I'm the only person who doesn't introduce himself, which either shows arrogance or sleep deprivation, I'm not sure which, but over to me in 2015 on the set of House on the Witch Pit. The House on the Witch Pit's existed for a long time now. Uh, a lot of different drafts, variations. It started off um, as a bit of a knockoff of the movie Warlock. It was a kind of sexy witches type thing. Uh, and then over the years it's changed a lot into loads and loads of different kind of permutations. Um, and the version as it exists now uh, is kind of a composite of lots of the different things it's been along the way. So those 10 years have been incredibly beneficial to it in terms of it becoming what it is now. However, when I talk about what it is now, at the moment for me that's still a kind of ever-changing thing. I don't know where this interview is going to end up, if it ends up on some kind of um, uh, official release at some point or whatever, whether there will ever be what, a kind of canonical version of this. But at the moment my idea is that it keeps moving and changing and it keeps uh, evolving really. Uh, I love the idea of screening it in one place and then changing it a bit and screening it somewhere else. At the moment we're releasing no um, stills, we're releasing no synopsis, we're releasing no cast list, no trailer uh, and so the audience has to go in cold. I think that this to a degree it's kind of a reaction to the fact that nowadays there is so much choice, there is too much choice. Um, and I think that the customer sometimes almost suffers choice paralysis. You sit down and you think, you know, oh, I want to watch a horror movie, and immediately you've got, you know, hundreds available via Netflix or whatever, and then you've got almost an infinite number across all the various different um, mediums where you could possibly sit down and watch a horror movie of an evening. So uh, I kind of like the idea that this one, for now at least, is going to be awkward. It's going to be, no, if you want to watch this movie, you can go out of your way to do so. We're not necessarily going to make it just one of a million choices. I want it to be something different to that. Um, because I, I think that um, some of the benefits of the digital age, which has enabled me to have a, a career as a filmmaker in, in micro-budget stuff, and I think some of the benefits there where you do, you do have this potential wide audience Obviously, you are then competing in a marketplace where everybody who's, who's kind of clocked onto that, um, they're all kind of doing that, and and, um, and that's fantastic. It's, it's kind of where we are now. There is loads of choice, and I kind of liked the idea of maybe taking a step back from that and going, all right, let's try something different. Mm -hmm. um, it's a dark movie. I used to describe it as a 3 a.m. panic attack, and I think I'm being visit revisited by some kind of dark god by the fact that since having described it as a 3 a.m. panic attack, since I've started shooting it every morning, I wake up at three o'clock in the morning and can't get back to sleep again. So that's my fault. I'm, I'm being punished with chronic insomnia uh, for having come up with a pithy interview quote. Um, but, you know, I think it's a small price to pay for such a snappy thing. If that's what this movie is, it's a 3 a.m. panic attack. Uh, and we are generally trying to shit people up here. I've made, this is like, what, my seventh movie? If you count anthology movies, it's my seventh movie. Uh, my fifth feature, if you don't count anthologies. And I've, although they've all been based in horror, I've never actually set out specifically just to scare people. And that's what the purpose of this is. It's to scare people. Hopefully we'll entertain them along the way, uh, but I want to unnerve people. I want to creep people out. And so, never having had that as my purpose before, I've never failed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, if, but if, if nobody anywhere is creeped out by this movie, then we have failed. Um, and I don't think we will. It's been a really great fun shoot. It's been fantastic working with the cast and crew. Um, we've got some familiar faces, we've got some new people on board and every one of them has worked out really, really well. Uh, we've been slotting little pieces of the puzzle into place and it's great to have a better picture of what this movie is gonna look like. And now we need to go and shoot a major death. So I'd probably better fuck off and do that.
And that's how things went in 2015. We had this core shoot where we produced a movie in a very short space of time for almost no money. We made a film that we called The House on the Witch Pit. I took it, I assembled it together along with the little bits and bobs that we'd been shooting for months beforehand and we shot a few more bits along the way. As we approached January 2016, I started to get something into shape that I felt worked as a movie. But as I mentioned in that interview clip on set, it hadn't been my intention to create a film and leave it at that. I wanted to do something stranger than that. So in January 2016, we took the House on the Witch Pit to the Horror on Sea Film Festival. We screened it once to a very busy audience and I then got up on stage after it had finished screening and destroyed it. I destroyed the master copy and I destroyed the backup and I genuinely did that, as in the film did not exist after it had screened. The footage still existed, the rough uh, takes still existed, obviously that was sitting at home safely on a digital drive, but the film that I screened to that busy audience in January 2016, the first version of The House on the Witch Pit, I got up on stage and destroyed, and it's gone. And I'm kind of proud of that as an artistic statement. It's not quite up there with the KLF burning a million quid, but in terms of something existing fleetingly and then stopping existing and not just being one more fucking ripple in the digital pool of infinite content. I like that. I like that that version no longer exists and it can't be revisited and it can't be, you know, <laughs> it's just gone. And I think there's sort of something beautiful about that. We did some more stuff with the House and the Witch Pit from that point. It came together in some other formats and in some other ways. And in fact, I think I'm going to do another episode of this podcast revisiting it at a later date probably not the next next weeks but that's the first part of the story of the house on the witch pit uh and maybe we'll be like the ralph bakshi lord of the rings and i'll just fucking leave it hanging now forever i'll just go and that ends the first part of the tale of the house on the witch pit and then you'll never hear it again but who knows it's my oddest movie it's a constant question mark on my cv and i hope this has sort of shone a dim spotlight into at least what i was trying to achieve um i don't know anyway thanks ever so much for listening and check us out again next week oh do follow me on twitter i'm zedcast theme on twitter uh, you can find my website at pathiggins.me.uk oh it's also worth saying Power Tool Cheerleaders versus the Boy Band of the Screeching Dead which is my new movie which actually starts principal photography on Sunday Hooray! Um, if you go to powertoolcheerleaders.com we're running a Rodriguez list which basically means that we're saying hey if you've got cool stuff that we could borrow or feature on screen for free be it uh, people or props or wardrobe or whatever that would help us make a better movie and it would help you plug whatever it is you do um, um, give us a shout. So if you go to powertoolcheerleaders.com, you can complete that form and you can maybe get your stuff featured on screen. I will see you next time and I hope everybody has an amazing week. Take care, everybody. My name is Pat Higgins and my conscience is clear. Mm -hmm.